The Optometry Talks podcast series is brought to you by Optometry New South Wales ACT, your peak professional body. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Optometry Talks. My name is Audrey Malloy, and I'm joined here today by Optometry New South Wales ACT CEO, Andrew McKinnon. Hi, Audrey. Good to be with you. We're also joined today by Sarah McKinnon. Are you two related by any chance? Hi, Audrey um, and Andrew. Um, and yes, I am very lucky enough to be related to Andrew. I am his daughter. <laughs> Sarah does amazing work for Optometry New South Wales ACT at the coalface, day in, day out, taking calls from you, our members, answering all your queries and pointing you in the direction of resources, CPD events, and so on. So I'm very pleased to have Sarah here with us today. So we're going to talk a little bit about employment contracts in this podcast. I need to start by saying that neither Andrew nor Sarah are lawyers. And so what they say today or any day is not legal advice. The comments they're giving are based on their experience with matters of this nature over a long period of time. But if you need a formal legal opinion, the team here at Optometry New South Wales ACT can put you in touch with lawyers who have particular employment expertise. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's get going. Sarah, we've spoken about this before and you've told me that perhaps the most common question we get in terms of contracts is, can I or how do I get out of my contract? Uh, Thanks, Audrey. Uh, Yes, we do get that question a lot. I think I probably get that question at least twice a week um, regularly. Um, The answer to that actual question is relatively simple when you terminate your con uh, when you terminate your employment you then are out of the contract when you terminate your employment you terminate the contract Um, so that is a relatively simple answer however after having conversations with a lot of members who ask this question we've come to realize that what people are actually asking is can I or how do I get out of the contractual obligations that I signed onto that pertain to what I can and cannot do after I leave my place of business? And that is an entirely different question to the original one that they've actually asked. Right. Okay. Well, that helps to shed a little bit of light on that. So perhaps a better question for both of you is this. Do I have to adhere to the conditions in my contract? Thanks, Audrey. So yes, that is generally what people are asking. And the very short answer is yes. When you sign onto a contract, you are agreeing to the conditions that are in the contract. Um, And what is particularly important about this agreement is that contracts are a legally binding document. Um, So when you sign onto it, you are legally agreeing to be obliged by the conditions in that contract. Andrew, have you got, sorry, I was just going to ask, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, look, just to jump in briefly, um, you can certainly attempt to renegotiate the conditions of the contract after you sign them. Always better to try and do it beforehand. But unless your employer agrees, um, the conditions of the old contract will apply. Um, So the short comment to that is, just because you've decided that the conditions no longer suit you or you don't like them doesn't mean you no longer have to adhere to them. Hmm. Right. Well, that makes sense. Um, Okay. Well, the next question is a major bugbear for many of our members. So 
my contract says my employer can move me to a different location if necessary for the continual running of the business. Do I have to go? Yes, so this is a super common question, Audrey, um, for people that work for franchises generally Mm -hmm. um, because there are so many different locations of the same company um, or there'll be someone that owns um, a bunch of bunch of different optometry practices under the same company name mm-hmm. um in short yes you do have to if your contract stipulates so but not unconditionally um, so often the contractual clause in relation to this will say something along the lines of within a reasonable distance or that which is reasonable always using the word reasonable Um, And what that essentially means is that if they need you to move to a store in the next postcode, the next suburb along or something to fill in for a colleague, then you have agreed that they can ask you to do that and you are obliged to do so because that is a reasonable request from your employer to do that. And that that, that point about reasonable is really good um, because let's use the example, let's say you're originally contracted to work in Castle Hill, but then your employer says, gee, I'd really like you to go and work in Port Macquarie. Uh, That's not reasonable. Um, Even within Sydney, so let's assume again, you were originally contracted to work in Avalon, but then they want you to go and work in Cronulla. Um, Again, probably not reasonable, especially because it Uh, It depends on your personal circumstances. So let's say you've got a child in care in Avalon and you have to pick them up by 5.30, but you're working in Cronulla and you don't finish till five o'clock. It's physically impossible to do it. So that context of reasonable is extremely important in this sort of scenario. And so what, what, what are your rights then if they do ask you to do something unreasonable, that's clearly unreasonable, can you just meet with your, do you meet with the employer? Do you just refuse to go? How do you handle, how do you recommend that they handle that? You always meet with them and talk to them about it. Um, my experience has been that there are very, very few employers who when it's pointed out to them that what they're asking is unreasonable will persist. Um, you can always always almost get it resolved by discussion. Great, okay. So, okay, here's another one. My contract says I may have to work where necessary, reasonable additional hours. What does that mean? And do I have to adhere to it? So essentially this condition operates in the same way as the one Sarah was just talking about and reasonable pops up again. The reasonable additional hours clause is intended to cover things like patients running late um, or needing to stay back because uh, another staff member has been taken ill and you now need to close for the day, something like that. There are unusual occurrences which don't happen regularly and which just get rolled into the normal part of a professional day. Um, However, if it goes much beyond that, or if it becomes regular, that ceases to be reasonable. Yeah, so just in addition to what Andrew says, I generally say to members when they call, um, pretty much what Andrew said um, about reasonable additional hours staying back for the regular operation of the business. Um, But if you contractually regularly work Monday to Friday, um, and that's what you signed on to, 
if your employer starts asking you to come in every Saturday, that is not reasonable additional hours. Um, so that's kind yeah. of generally where I draw the line is if they're asking you to do an extra day or something like that, that's obviously no longer reasonable. Yeah, or a weekend day. Um, and something that Andrew mentioned there about the, you know, if it becomes regular. So I know there's people who will say, oh my God, we had a shocker today. It was really busy. I had to work all through lunchtime just to get my referrals done and catch up. If that's a one-off, I guess that's reasonable. But if that's something that's happening every day, that's when you're probably in a better position to say to your employer, look, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to schedule in some catch-up periods into my my schedule so that this doesn't keep happening every day so I don't miss lunch every day or I don't end up here till six o'clock every day so it's when it becomes that regular pattern that that's when you would have the conversation with the employer would that be right exactly right yes okay it's a it's a regularity once it becomes regular then it's time to sit them down and have a very hard conversation okay Okay, so the next question, now I think I know what this means, but Sarah, can you explain to me what is meant by a restraint clause and what it covers? Yeah, absolutely, Audrey. Um, I would say this is probably the second most common question I get asked, um, the most common question relating to a particular clause or condition in the contract. Um, so a restraint clause refers to what you can and cannot do after you leave the practice, after you're no longer working for that practice, you're moving on and you're trying to get work or employment elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so a restraint clause always has a time period and a physical radius which you cannot work within in a role that is in any way similar to the one you were at at your previous place of employment. Um, so what this means a little bit more simply, um, or with an example, I guess, uh, is that if your restraint clause says five kilometers uh, as the physical distance and six months as the time period, then from the date of the end of your contract at your current place of work, you cannot operate as an optometrist within a five kilometer radius of that practice for a six month period. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes I get questions that say my new place of employment or the new place I want to work at is 4.8 kilometers away. That's close enough to five kilometers. Can I go? Um, and the answer is no. <laughs> um, it's relatively simple. The, the, the physical boundaries and the time frame are definitive unless your, your employer agrees to, to get rid of that clause in the contract. Um, so just, just to add on to that, um, something that can get a little bit confusing and I get a lot of questions about this from members, um, is that when you're reading this particular clause in a contract, it is often written as what's called a cascading clause, um, which I will explain. Um, and I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, when I start to explain it will be. Uh, will remember seeing this on their contract or if they go back and look at that contract they'll notice this um, they may not have noticed it before um, so a cascading restraint clause is often written as you cannot work within i 10 kilometers or if not enforceable ii five kilometers or if not enforceable iii three kilometers 
and then it will do the same for the time frame. So underneath that, the contract will then read for a period of I, 12 months, a period of II, six months, or if not enforceable, a period of II, three months. Now, when you're reading that, it can be a little bit convoluted and a little bit confusing if people don't understand contracts and how they're written and why they're written that way. Um, so when you see a cascading clause, you as the employee must assume that the clause pertains to the strictest component of that clause. So if we use the example that I just gave, the strictest component of that clause is 10 kilometers and 12 months. So that is what you must assume you have to adhere to once you cease employment at your current place of business. Okay, so what does the if not enforceable part of that uh, mean? Maybe Andrew oh, can shed a little light on yeah, this. Yeah, let Andrew jump in on this one. <laughs> so the reason they're written like that is it's strictly a legal construct and it's for the courts. So if this gets to court, um, judges will not impose their own views on contracts. They simply look at a contract and they determine what elements of the contract are enforceable. So if you have just one clause, as Sarah mentioned earlier, five kilometres for six months, if you were to take your employer to court and say, Your Honour, that's an unreasonable restraint of trade, the judge might look at it and go, yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's too harsh. If there's nothing cascading underneath it, then that's the end of the story. The judge does not say, I think five kilometres for six months is too tough, but do you reckon you could live with five kilometres for three months? They don't do that. That's not their job. They simply say, that clause is too harsh. I'm striking it out. It's gone. Then there's no restraint. You can go and set up next door if you wish tomorrow. Uh, so what they've done is in writing the cascading clause, it's essentially an auction for the judge. You go in and you say... Your Honour, 10 kilometres for 12 months is absolutely outrageous. The employer comes and the judge says, agree completely. And the employer comes back and says, Your Honour, I've got a deal for you. How about five kilometres for six months? Nah, still not buying it. Well, Your Honour, for today only, Black Friday, three kilometres for three months. And the judge says, yeah, okay, I could buy that. That's what we'll settle on. Without okay. those cascading elements, the judge has no ability to work down to something which is more agreeable. Okay, but unless you're actually taking your employer to court over this or pushing back on this original, um, uh, the most, um, the, the highest, mo um, most severe sort of restraint, then these other clauses are not going to come into effect unless you get to that stage. So Correct. you can ignore those for the purpose of your, your next role, just ignore the, the, the cascading clauses further down the line, go with the strictest one, unless it's, it's not possible and you're, you are going to court over it and that's when they might come into effect. Is that, is that how it works? Absolutely. The cascading clause is written for one thing only, that's to put in front of a judge if it ever Oh, okay. And, right. Uh, sorry, just to add to what Andrew said as well. Um, generally, especially within um, kind of the, um, the metro region of New South Wales, um, so a little bit different when you go out into country regions, um, but generally from what myself and Andrew have seen kind of collectively over 30 years at this place of work, um, 
there's not a lot that the court of law will view as unreasonable in what modern how modern day contracts are written so if your contract for sydney city does say five kilometers 12 months um we haven't seen a lot of it being considered unreasonable that it is for a 12 month period or a five kilometer radius um so right yeah. And so, so what happens if I want to take up another offer inside the restraint radius? Like, obviously, I can't just ignore what's in the contract. So, um, yeah, maybe, Andrew, you could share a little about what you've gleaned over the last couple of decades in relation to what happens if you ignore a restraint clause. Mm, it's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> as Sarah has said, um, if you sign a contract, you consider yourself to be bound by it. So we do. We certainly get questions about as Sarah said, you know, I've, I would really like to take up a job offer, uh, but it's only a few kilometres down the road, not quite the five. Can I do it? The answer is no, because you've contractually agreed that you won't do that. Uh, the follow-up question is, well, what if I just ignore it? And the answer to that is um, what you've done is, as has been said, you've signed a contract. If you break a contract, then your employer is entitled to go to the Supreme Court of New South Wales or the ACT, if you're listening from the ACT, same deal, um, and apply for an injunction to stop you from doing that. And an injunction simply is a declaration by the court that they think you should cease doing something until such time as the court has had the chance to fully hear the matter and resolve one way or another what, what the uh, their view is. So if you just decide to go down the road and take up a new job offer, your employer is perfectly entitled to go to the Supreme Court and say, uh, Your Honour, uh, Fred Smith has left my employ and contrary to the contract that I had with Fred, uh, he has set up uh, working down the road with, uh, with one of my competitors. The likely answer is the judge will say, show me the contract. Yes, that's indeed what it does say. Fred, have you got any really good answer immediately as to why I shouldn't issue an injunction to stop you doing that. Uh, Fred's not likely to have a good answer because that's what the contract says and he signed it. That is your signature, is it not? Um, and so the judge will say, injunction granted. Now, all that means is that it stops you from working for a period of time until you can get to generally the district court and get the matter heard and a judge there will consider the entirety of the circumstance whether it's reasonable, whether it's not. Supreme Court doesn't do that. It simply says, do you have a contract? What does it say? Is that your signature? Right. Thanks very much. Um, if you're the employee who's breached their contract, that little exercise will cost you around about $10,000 for a day in the Supreme Court. Um, you will probably lose. There have been two occasions in the past 20 odd years where these have gone to court and the employee has lost on both occasions. Um, you'll then be faced with one of two things. You either give up in disgust or as somebody did, um, they decided to take it to the district court. Uh, that exercise cost them $25,000 and they lost. Uh, they then had to pay their 10 plus their 25 plus costs for the employer. It was a very expensive exercise and they lost. So the short answer to it is, if you have signed an agreement and it says five kilometres for 12 months, that's what it means and that's what you should you should adhere to because to do otherwise is fraught with danger and probably possibly more importantly fraught with expense 
Okay, well, that's um, that's pretty off-putting. Um, I think from what you're talking about there, Andrew, it does sound like it's um, it's important for us to think about it or put ourselves in the shoes of the employer here to think about it from their perspective. So they've lost uh, an employee who you know sees patients, has built up rapport with those patients, um, and now they're moving. Maybe you know they want to move a couple of streets away and and provide the same services. So if we think about it from their perspective, it's easier to understand why clauses like this exist. Yeah, exactly um, right. That That's precisely what it's designed to do. It's designed to protect the legitimate business interests of the practice owner. And, yeah. and as you've just expressed it, once you think of it that way, it's very hard to argue with the reasonableness of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, on a related matter um, and an, another specific clause, I'll come back to Sarah. Um, what is a non-solicitation clause? Thanks, Audrey. Um, so a non-solicitation clause... Um, in almost every optometry contract. Um, and it refers to where you leave a practice and you solicit patients to come with you. So a non-solicitation clause is basically saying that you cannot solicit patients to come with you to your new place of work. Um, and involved in solicitation is directly asking the patient to come with you enticing the patient to come with you um, and also even implying that the patient should come with you. So just telling the new patient where you now work and giving a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's not that far from your kid's school kind of thing. That is also involved in solicitation um, and it is not allowed if you sign on with a non-solicitation clause. So what, what would happen if they ask you? So you're seeing a patient, you say, look, I'm going to book you in for review in a month's time. I won't be here myself. You'll be seeing my colleague. And they say, oh, where, where are you off to? So if they ask you directly, do you have to sort of mask where you're going or just say, I'm not going to be with the company anymore? Uh, how, how do you ha suggest that that's handled? Okay, so it's a little bit different if the patient then comes to your new practice of their own free will. So if you haven't in any way solicited the patient to come with you, but you end up going 5.2 Ks away um, and your restraint clause is a five kilometer radius. So you haven't broken that in any way. Your patient shows up to your new practice. Um, they now know that you work there, not because you've solicited them to come with you, um, but they found out, maybe they found out through us um, where your new place of business is. They really like your service. They come to your new practice. That is a different situation. If they come of the, their own free will to your new practice, your contract cannot prohibit them doing so. And that's because a contract that you sign as an optometrist cannot mandate what a patient does. It cannot prohibit a patient from doing anything of their own free will, and it cannot control the patient's ability to make their own decisions and do things of their own free will. So that's very different. But if you are enticing the patient to come with you, then that's when you're in violation of a non-solicitation clause. Okay. So Audrey, just to... Follow on from that and the, the particular example you've you asked about. Um, what we say in those sorts of circumstances is so you're right, patient standing there going, but I want to know where you're going. Uh, the answer is, look, I'm not at liberty to tell you, uh, but uh, I will be um, I will be advertising in local media, and uh, you'd 
be uh, most welcome to have a look at that at the appropriate time. It's got to be vague. You right. can't say check my Facebook. Uh, you know, you, you but something like that, you'd be okay. Uh, but if you go much beyond that, uh, right, it becomes so problematic. It, it, it's safer while you're still at that practice, even if they say, "Oh, where will you be?" That you're just a little vague and say, "Look, I'm not at liberty to say, but I will be. Um, I still will be practicing." And um, yeah. That's all I can really say for now. Correct. So that's up Keep, to them to look for you rather than you tell them correct. where you're going. Keep an eye on the local newspaper or, as Sarah said, um, you know, ring the association. They'll yeah, sure. know where I've gone. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, now, what was my next question going to be? So, Andrew, what do you think is a reasonable restraint period and distance? Like, what should people be looking for when they're signing a contract? Are there red flags where you go, oh, gosh, that does not look reasonable at all? Or does it depend a little on where the practice is, like if it's a metro, regional? Tell, give, give us some ideas about what, what's reasonable. Okay. So, uh, most clauses uh, in contracts have a restraint of between three and five kilometres for between six and 12 months. So, anything in that, in that continuum, you'll be okay with or the, the contract will be okay with. Um, in Metro Sydney, that's still a pretty big radius. Uh, in Metro Sydney, there is no way I would recommend signing a contract which had, for example, a 10 kilometer exclusion, because remember these are straight line radii um, and they are very, very big. 10 kilometers from say Chatswood um, as a straight line radius will wipe out just about all of everything between Hornsby and Sydney. Uh, it's a huge sway. So you've got to be very careful about what you sign for. It's not, it takes me five kilometres to drive from somewhere to somewhere. It's a straight line. Um, in the country, it's a bit different because most country towns and even the big country towns like Wagga Wagga, Tamworth, Port Macquarie, those sorts of places, five kilometres, three kilometres, even two kilometres wipes out the entire town. Um, you can't work anywhere, so you've got to leave town. So it's less of a problem. So if you were working in Tamworth and you had a 50-kilometre exclusion, it's no different to having a two-kilometre exclusion. There's mm -hmm. nothing within 50 kilometres of Tamworth, so it makes no difference. Um, so it, it does depend, you're right, Audrey, on your geographic location. But as I said, by and large, three to five kilometres for six to 12 months is about it. If you get one of these silly contracts, which we see every so often, which starts with you can't work in Australia um, or in New South Wales or something equally idiotic, um, don't sign it. Just okay. ring us and we'll talk you through it. Okay. Okay, so changing topics slightly, Sarah, I'm going to come back to you and to talk a little bit about holiday entitlements. So this is a common one. What are my public holiday entitlements if I usually work a public holiday and the business is open that day? Thanks, Audrey. Um, so the answer to this is both simple and a little bit more complicated at the same time. Um, so the short, easy answer is whatever your contract says. Um, but this is confusing for a lot of people, um, especially because a lot of people feel like there should be entitlements around public holidays. Um, and we do get a lot of this question, especially coming into Easter, um, Anzac Day, the really common um, public holidays that are across Australia. Um, so if your contract states that you normally work public holidays, um, unless you have agreed 
with your employer for it to be different. Essentially what that clause is saying is if you want to have the day off, you have to put in for annual leave and you have to have it approved. Um, So the way that optometry businesses generally operate is within retail spaces. Um, So a million and one optometry practices in Bondi Junction Shopping Centre, Hornsby Westfield, um, stuff like that. So they generally operate in retail spaces. And what that also means is that they operate on retail hours and days, which is seven days a week. So if you are contracted on to work a Monday and the public holiday falls on a Monday, you do not automatically get that public holiday off unless your contract states. Most of the time you will have to work that public holiday unless you and your employer have negotiated something different or you put in for annual leave and like putting in for annual leave on any day or for any time frame, it has to be improved by your employer before you're entitled to that. Okay, so just um, what happens if the practice closes? So there's a, you work a Monday, that's one of your days, um, and this, this practice closes for the public holidays at fall on a Monday, it's closed. So do you have to put in for leave for that day or do you just get that as a bonus? Um, Andrew, I will let you jump in. I'll, on I'll jump in one. on that. That's a bonus. Um, okay, so great. If, the, if the practice closes and Monday is your normal working day, the practice doesn't open, you're paid for that day at your normal normal rates, uh, just like I do if, uh, if you know, there's a Monday and I don't come into the office because it's a public holiday, I get paid normally. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a bonus. Okay, and if you work permanent part time, and those and those days are set days. So say you work, say I work for example a Wednesday, Thursday. So obviously the the, the regular Monday public holidays don't affect me. But if 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 Christmas fell for example on a Wednesday and Boxing Day fell on a Thursday, um, then I would get paid for those two days because they are my normal work days. Or can my employer ask me to work other days instead? No, they, they can't ask you to work other days. They could ask you to work on those days. Of course, they wouldn't ask you to work on Christmas Day. They if they were well open, ask, yeah. Yeah, they may well ask you to work on Boxing Day because it's a very busy day. Sure, uh, yeah. But uh, no, you, you they can't substitute other days. You either work and get paid for it, or if the practice is closed, you're paid as if it's a normal working day. Okay, great. Sorry, just to, sorry, just to jump in with one more thing that I commonly get asked about public holidays um, is people love to ask about time in lieu. Um, And generally the answer is, does your contract say anything about time in lieu for a public holiday? And most people say no. Um, If your contract does not mention that you're going to receive time in lieu for work in the public holiday, then you're not going to receive it. I think a lot of people just hear this term time in lieu or maybe they have a colleague whose contract says time in lieu for working a public holiday. So then they just call up and ask, do I get time in lieu for the public holiday? Not right. unless your contract stipulates that you will receive time in lieu for working a public holiday. Yeah, people don't like when their colleagues get more than them, I've noticed. (laughs) Um, Here's another example just while we're on this. So you're doing a a job share with someone you do, let's say you do 
two two and a half days each a week. Um, they, their days include the Monday, so they're regularly getting and uh, maybe a Friday. So they're regularly getting Mondays paid and Fridays if the practice closes for public holidays and Good Friday. But you are not. Um, you do, do you have a like? Do you have a leg to stand on here? Can you? Is that just the way it works out, or can you? Can you discuss it with your employer? What would you recommend in that situation? Uh, yeah, them's the breaks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's uh, if if you're right. If uh, someone a part timer normally works on a Monday and lots of holidays fall on a Monday, yep, they get the benefit. If you work on a Wednesday, there's not too many. Mm, it's the too way. Too bad. It, it's yeah. just the way it goes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Can I just add one other thing there? Yeah. Um, Sarah just added that uh, that bit about time in lieu. The other question we often get asked is, do I get penalty rates? Uh, because everyone has this notion in their head that uh, if you work on a public holiday, you get double time or whatever. Uh, the answer to that is exactly as Sarah said, depends what's in your contract. Um, mm. If your contract simply says you'll work on a public holiday if required, then you're paid at the normal rate. It's all in your contract. There is no universal entitlement to this magic thing called penalty rates. Penalty mm -hmm. rates exist in awards and optometrists are not covered by an award. So it doesn't exist for us unless it's in your contract. Okay. Well, that's a lot covered off on holidays. Um, now I'm going to go to um, ending your contract early. So here's a question. Um, Sarah, if I have a two-year contract, can I leave before the end of the two-year period? Uh, yes, you absolutely can. So if you have a two-year contract, you can leave whenever you choose. You can cease a contract at any time. There is nothing that prevents you from leaving a place of work. Your employer cannot essentially hold you hostage within that workplace due to the fact that you signed a contract. Um, however, if there are stipulations in your contract that hinge on you being there for a certain period of time, um, if you don't see out the full term of the contract, then you're not entitled to those. Um, so a really easy example of something like this that can occur um, is if you are moving to a rural area, you're relocating to a rural area to take up a job opportunity, um, they ask you to sign a two-year contract and as part of your relocation, you're receiving a relocation package for moving to that rural area. Sometimes the contract will say for your relocation, you will receive $5,000 upfront and then at the end of your two-year contract or at the cessation of your two-year contract, you will receive another $5,000. So the total relocation package being $10,000. If you decide to leave that place of business after a year um, and cease your contract after a year, then you are not entitled to receive that money that was stipulated on seeing out the two-year contract. So in that example I just gave, you're forfeiting the $5,000 that you should have received at the end of two years of employment with that company. So does that mean you get to keep the 5000 that you get up front, even if you only stayed for six months or four depends. months? Or? So it, that, uh, that depends what the contract says, Audrey. Um, yeah. So some contracts will say you simply receive the $5,000 up front and another $5,000 at the end of employment. Um, so if that was what the contract stipulated, then yes. 
Um, but if your contract says you will receive $5,000 upfront, $5,000 at the end of employment, and all of this is contingent on you working at this place for two years, mm-hmm. then you will actually have to pay back that $5,000 that you received upfront if right. you choose to end the contract prematurely. Right. So the devil is in the detail. You really have to yeah. be looking carefully. Yeah. Yeah. And we do encourage if you have, we encourage this for all contracts, but especially if there's a relocation package or something like that in your contract and you don't necessarily understand the finer details, give us a call. We understand mm. the finer details and we can talk yeah. you through it. Send, send, us our con- send us your contracts. This is what we do. So um, <laughs> if you're any query at all and get the contracts into us and we will have a look it's all part of your membership okay so here's another one um i've signed an agreement to work with the practice starting when i graduate so i'm still a student but now i've had an offer much closer to home can i get out of that first contract um yes you can that's the very simple answer um but i will throw it to andrew for a longer more detailed (laughs) answer um, look, yes, you can. Um, so signing a contract, as Sarah just said, does not mean that your employer gets to take you hostage and, and turn you into a slave. Um, so you can, let's say you're a new grad and you sign up now because there's a, a job on offer and you're not sure what else is coming up. But then in a month's time, this fantastic opportunity arises on the northern beaches of Sydney, which is just down the road from where you work, and you decide you want to take that one instead. You absolutely can go back to your the, the person you've signed with in the first instance and say, look, terribly sorry, uh, this is what's happened. I, I will be rescinding my acceptance. Now, as Sarah's just pointed out in the previous question, if you have already been paid any allowances or bonuses, you'll absolutely have to give those back. There's no question. Um, if not, then you simply walk away. My warning on this is that if you do that, so if you sign up with somebody and then a few months later renege on it, you're not going to be popular. And particularly organisations that are larger have long corporate memories. So if at some stage in the future you want to go and work for them, you might just find that the reception you get is a little bit less than warm because they look back and go, well, you left us in the lurch. Uh, because you'd signed up with us, um, we had stopped looking, and then you changed your mind. So my advice is, look, that will occasionally happen, and it's genuine, and there's nothing anyone can do about it, and everyone accepts that it happens. Uh, But my advice is, don't just accept contracts willy-nilly on the basis that at some point in the future, you'll decide which one you want. Uh, Something will bite you on on the behind at some point in the future. Hmm. And I'm guessing that that bite will be proportional to how much in the lurch you've left them. So if you if you tell them two weeks out to starting a job, actually I'm working for someone else, that's a much bigger problem than saying six months out, listen, I've changed my mind. They've got six months then to fill your position. So it's likely to be less um, of an issue for them. Um, Absolutely. And particularly if that two-week period was for somewhere in the bush uh, where they're really going to struggle to get somebody mm-hmm. else, you're absolutely right. Uh, it will be a much bigger deal. Okay, so this is slightly related. Um, 
when you're signing a contract, Andrew, what would you consider um, through your experience to be a reasonable amount of notice to give? What's the notice period that you is reasonable to give if you're leaving? So say you've been there between one year and five years, how much notice should you be giving your employer to leave? Okay, so the, the requirement uh, under the Fair Work Act is that you give at least the period of notice between pays. So if you are paid weekly, it's a week. If you're paid fortnightly, it's a fortnight, etc. Uh, but that's the minimum. Um, my view would be strongly that you give at least a month's notice, if that's at all possible. And if you're in a rural area, it's longer. And the reason for that is just simply it takes a whole lot longer to recruit in a rural area than it does in Sydney. And so... Again, we've mentioned the employer previously. You go to the employer and say, look, I've got another job, I'm leaving. They immediately go into a flap thinking, right, where am I going to get somebody? In Metro Sydney, Bondo Junction, Chatswood, not going to be that much of a deal. Tamworth, Wagga Wagga, Dubbo, much bigger deal. Um, and therefore, if you can, if it's not a family emergency, whatever you can do, um, try and give them as much notice as possible. Give them three months if you can, because remember optometry is a small profession. We all tend to know each other and uh, evil deeds uh, don't go unnoticed. So in that example, you're, it's sort of, it's, it sounds like there's maybe no clause in there and you're deciding yourself what notice to give. But if there is a clause in it, about, can the employer have a clause in the contract about notice? So if you're leaving, you must give us three months notice. And what would be a reasonable, when would you be worried about that clause if, as an employee assigning something? What notice period would you feel would be just too long and needs to be, you need to push back against? Okay, sorry, you're absolutely right. Almost every contract I've seen has some some notice period in it. Um, it's usually four weeks in rural areas, it's longer. Um, what's reasonable, as I said, four weeks in metro, anything up to three months in rural, uh, in my experience, is reasonable. I have seen some contracts which have had ridiculous notice periods in them, six months, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. you, you would never accept a contract with a six-month notice period. Um, mm -hmm. You would always seek to negotiate that before you signed. Right. Okay, so if it's metro and it's six months, you just yeah. say, look, that's just not standard. Uh, would you maybe get advice from us on that and then go back to them and say, look, you know, I'd be more comfortable with X number of weeks or whatever? Um, yeah, absolutely. And Look, it, it always helps to be able to go back to the employer and say, listen, I rang the association, I spoke with Sarah, I spoke with Andrew, and their advice was. Mm -hmm. That's always a really good way to do it. One of the reasons for that is that it puts the heat on us. It takes it off you. So if you as a, a young grad want to negotiate something which is patently unreasonable, um, it's a bit hard for you to go back and say, but I don't like this. Whereas if you go back and say, I rang the association and their advice was that it should be a maximum of four weeks, that carries a lot more weight. It also means that the argument then becomes between the employer and us, not you mm -hmm. and the employer. And yeah. that, that, that's a it much easier it. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, another area that we get questions on is your professional indemnity insurance and what when it covers you. So if you break a contractual clause, um, does your professional indemnity insurance still cover you? And can you maybe talk us through an example of that? 
Okay, so I've gotten this question not a lot of times, um, but definitely enough times that it's become concerning, I guess, um, to me. No, your professional indemnity insurance does not cover just a blatant contractual violation or choosing to not adhere to your restraint clause or anything. I think for some people that's just a little bit of a misunderstanding of what your professional indemnity insurance involves. So just to clarify, Sarah, we're not talking about the, the patient that you're seeing is still going to be covered if some if you miss something or whatever. You're talking about actually being reimbursed here for pay. Is that is that is that the kind of question you're getting? Is that what you mean? Or what what how does this actually work um, in for an optometrist? So like, what would be I'll an example the, of this? So the real life example, um, I guess the first one that comes to my head was I, I had a member call um, and ask me, um, they wanted to work at a new place of employment that mm -hmm. was about four and a half kilometers away from their old place of employment. Mm -hmm. um, and their restraint period was five kilometers, 12 months. Mm -hmm. And I said, my professional recommendation would absolutely be do not take up that new contract because you are in violation of your restraint clause. And their answer was, but I want to. And my answer was, I would not recommend it under any circumstance. And they essentially asked me if they choose to do so, will their professional indemnity insurance basically negate the contractual clause? Just somehow their professional indemnity insurance will cover them for the violation. And oh, they I see. will yeah, not yeah. have to deal with the ramifications of okay. breaking their restraint clause. And yeah. the simple answer is no, that's not what professional indemnity okay. insurance does. So yeah, so professional indemnity insurance is to cover you in the case that you miss a diagnosis or you misdiagnose someone or um, someone sues you or whatever, um, but it doesn't deal with um, contract law or, you know, uh, legal legalities of, of your contract or anything. So it's purely to do with um, indemnifying your clinical care of the patient and it doesn't extend into these other areas. Is that, is that right, Andrew? Have you got anything to add to that one? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. Um, Sarah's example is a good one. I've had someone say, um, okay, so if I, if I ignore the restraint radius and they take me to court, uh, I have a there, there's a clause in our professional indemnity insurance which says they'll cover court costs, and the mm -hmm. question was, will it cover that? And the answer was, no, it won't, because right. that court cost is in the context of, as you just said, Audrey, um, indemnifying you against problems with clinical care, not okay. because you chose to break a, break a contract. Okay, but just to clarify, your PII, your professional indemnity insurance, will still be continuous with all your patients, regardless of where you're working, as long oh, as you're absolutely. a member. But it's just it doesn't extend to the to legal costs about contract law and all of that. So that's not included in professional indemnity insurance. Correct. Okay, good one. Um, I think that's that's all the questions I have here. There's a lot of very valuable information for employees to consider in that. It's been a really interesting discussion, Andrew and Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule today to talk about these important things. Um, anything else to add? 
No, just want to say thanks, Audrey, um, for hosting this for us. And obviously, thank you to Andrew um, for speaking about this with me. Um, I, we really hope that this will be very helpful for a lot of members. We get so many calls about this. And obviously, this isn't us trying to deflect those phone calls. This is kind of a precursor, a, a conversation we wanted to have, hoping that this will encourage more people to contact us preemptively about their contracts rather than when they're in a sticky situation um, after they've signed the contract. Yeah, particularly students. I think um, we don't get as many students run their contracts past us as as we should really to just protect them from things that can crop up. So we really encourage any student signing their first contract in particular, but any anyone signing a contract, but especially those students who are maybe not as aware of some of the pitfalls to just run it past us. Um, it's something we're very happy to do. It's all included in your membership. And um, the team here, we're here to support you. We're just a phone call or an email away you can call us here directly on 02-9712-2199 you can also get information from the optometry australia national office if you can't reach us for some reason but that would be pretty unusual so uh, andrew any final take-home messages uh no look that's been a really good conversation i hope it's helped people um as audrey said we're here to help you so contact us phone us email us whatever you need um let us know That's our job. We're here to help. Great. Okay. Well, that concludes this episode of Optometry Talks. Um, You can find out more about the tailored support we offer our members from other podcasts in the series. And thanks for joining us. This episode of Optometry Talks was brought to you compliments of Optometry New South Wales ACT. 